Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Humble Perspectives podcast. I'm still having a little trouble with drainage in my throat, so I may have to pause from time to time to clear things up. Please bear with me. Today I'll be reading chapter 17, which is titled Division, from my book For Such a Time as This, One Man's Spiritual Journey. This was the most difficult chapter to write. In fact, I wrote a version of this chapter nearly 20 years ago and then couldn't get past it to finish the book for a long time. I even thought about leaving out the part of my story told in this chapter, but after wrestling with it again and again over several years, I came to the conviction that I needed to talk about the impact this particularly difficult season of my life had on my internal journey, as well as about the changes which came about in my life and in our family's life through this season. So this topic will continue for a, a few chapters. It was as though I had writer's block for years. I just couldn't get that chapter rewritten and then go on to finish the book until 2017 when I was able to take a sabbatical in order to write. Then in two months, that chapter and the rest of the book were written. The book is better, I think, in a number of ways than it would have been because of that long delay. Although there was painful division to deal with, I have deep and continuing respect for those involved. I firmly believe that all of us were doing the best we knew to follow God even when we were doing things that were hurtful to one another. Whatever weaknesses and failures we may have had, God's faithfulness continues. God is the relentless Redeemer who cannot be hindered from saving, as Jonathan expressed it in 1 Samuel 14:6. Whatever we may experience, the Apostle Paul told the truth plainly. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28, New American Standard Bible. And now I begin chapter 17, Division. From my perspective, the Lord had called me to be a member of a significant work of the Holy Spirit. Many of us believe that the Holy Spirit was working through us to restore the whole church to the life described in the New Testament and to bring together the divided body of Christ in answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. Professing to believe that I had even a tiny part in a vision to change the whole church with its 2,000-year history sounds somewhat grandiose now. Even so, at the time, I had not heard of any comparable movement in church history. To be a part of such vision was heady wine indeed. The call to seek unity that I felt was strong. Vision for unity in the church had begun to awaken me while I was still at Wake Park Wesleyan, where my farewell sermon in early 1974 was a call to unity with diversity. I had sought to build unity in relationships with other pastors while I was in Richland Center, Wisconsin. Our experience with Wycliffe Bible Translators fed the desire and encouraged hope 
that Christians of diverse backgrounds could indeed work together in unity. Then my wife and I began to invest our lives into learning how to live in the unity of the Spirit with Christians from other denominations in covenant community. Uncomfortable and even frightening sometimes, yes, but extremely exciting too, a call deserving of our highest sacrifice. I believed it was a special privilege to have such a call. The importance of our ecumenical covenant community seemed to be confirmed when I discovered that even the earliest stages of development of the communities had been noticed and mentioned, if only slightly, in Erdman's Handbook to the History of Christianity, which was published in 1977, the same year that we had moved to Minneapolis to be a part of the Servants of the Lord. In an article titled, quote, The Pentecostals, unquote, James Dunn had written, quote, but the widening of the charismatic movement since the 1960s has brought with it a questioning of the classical Pentecostal categories, a desire to formulate the theology of the Pentecostal experience more carefully, and a renewed concern to let the life of the Spirit be expressed in new forms of community. Dunn also mentioned that in the view of some, the charismatic movement is the best hope for a renewal of the church in the closing decades of this century. End of quote. I don't want to minimize the important work God had done to bring us together in community or the witness that the covenant communities and individual members, whether still in one of those communities or not, have had through the years. However, my perspective about what we were was overly idealistic at that time. We had been greatly blessed by the grace of God. We had great potential to serve Him together, but we were still human. We were redeemed in Christ, yet still easily susceptible to temptation and sin. Idealism had to give way to reality and greater humility. Over the next several years, the divisions among the ecumenical covenant communities and between the five teachers and the new wine stream would set back our ability to work as effectively as we could have for unity in the church. However, God's work did not begin or end with us. I am grateful that God is so committed to His purposes that He works with us and through us, even when we are carnal and weak in ourselves. One evening in early spring 1981, I came home later than expected from some meeting or another. As I walked into our apartment, Patricia informed me that Jack Brombach had been trying to contact me. She said that he had called several times, then he had shown up at the door and waited quite a while for me to get home. At last, when I still had not returned, he had asked Patricia to have me come to his house by 7 o'clock the next morning, ready to fly to Chicago for the day. Clearly, something unusual was afoot. So it was that 7 a.m. the following morning, I was sitting in the Brombach's kitchen, at the Brombach's kitchen table drinking coffee. About five minutes later, Jack walked into the room and greeted me. His appearance startled me. Ever since I'd known Jack, he'd always worn a toupee. Actually, he had started wearing one when he was in his mid-twenties. But on this morning, he wore no hairpiece. His head was completely bald on top and most of the back. What little hair he had was trimmed short on the sides and the lower back of his head. Embarrassed, I looked away, thinking, 
Should I tell him that he's forgotten something? Before I could speak, Jack put me at ease, saying simply, I decided I don't need to cover up my baldness anymore. With these simple words, I realized that Jack had found new inner strength and self-confidence. Why or how, I had no idea. Once I got over the surprise and discomfort, I realized that Jack did not need the toupee. He looked better without it. Jack informed me that the two of us were going to travel with fellow coordinators Hal Longevin, Bill Rademacher, Louis Grams, and John Burry to Chicago, where we were to meet some of the elders from the People of Praise community in South Bend, Indiana. Larry Alberts, our third head coordinator, would normally have been included in the group, but a few months earlier he had been sent on a mission to help a community in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, to help them get established in a life together. By 10 a.m., we had flown into Chicago's Midway Airport and caught a hotel van to a nearby Holiday Inn where Paul DeSales, Kevin Ranahan, and a couple other brothers from South Bend greeted us. Together, we walked into a meeting room that they had reserved. It was here that I learned that there had already been, or was soon going to be, a separation between the Word of God community and the people of praise. Some communities in the larger association of communities would follow the lead of Ann Arbor, but the people praise would not, and they were looking to continue working with communities of like mind with them. The main substance of our discussion that day was to hear the ideas that the men from the people praise had for building together in the future. As I understood it that day, the people praise brothers believed that the Word of God leaders were trying to build a tighter organization than we had had in the Association of Communities. From the beginning of working together, the Ann Arbor Brothers had wanted the communities to form a federation with some measure of central government. But after long discussions, the leaders of the communities involved had settled on the word association to define our relationship as a network of self-governed communities who had chosen to build according to common values and structures and to cooperate together in mission. We were told that the brothers from Ann, from Ann Arbor were putting together something like a community of communities, which they would call the Sword of the Spirit. To me, it sounded as if the organization they were planning would be comparable to the many monastic orders within the Roman Catholic Church, except that this one would be ecumenical and would include families as well as celibates. It would have strong centralized government rather than continue simply as an association of autonomous communities. The brothers from the People Praise were considering two different ideas. The one they seemed to favor that day was to develop a fellowship of communities with an even looser structure than the association. But they also mentioned that they had been considering building one large international community with branches in various locations which sounded to me to be even more centralized than the Ann Arbor plan. After batting these ideas around for a few hours, about 4 p.m., we headed back to Midway Airport to return home. I was not totally surprised about these developments. There had been indications for several months that serious wrestling was taking place among the leaders of the association. I remember that a few months earlier when Paul DeSales was visiting in Minneapolis, some of us had discussed some of the differences in thinking among the leaders of the two communities. 
Although I had not discerned it at the time, these differences among the brothers led to two di distinct approaches to preparing for the hard times that, which had been prophesied, and these approaches had been presented at the Steubenville meetings the previous summer. During this visit, Paul had told us that he and the South Bend brothers had serious concerns that the Ann Arbor men were taking the hard times prophecies too literally and that if they organized around the belief that hard times would be cataclysmic and if the prophecies were not fulfilled that way, people could be disillusioned and even hurt over time. On the other hand, he had said the South Bend leaders had come to the conclusion that they had no way to know what or when or how hard times would come, but that according to scripture, God's people should live a provident and resourceful life, setting aside resources in times of plenty that would help them survive in difficult times, which are sure to come from time to time. Human history is replete with upswings and downswings in economies and social orders, he said. Paul also had said that there were serious differences in how the two groups of leaders interpreted the biblical teaching about brotherhood. According to him, the Word of God leaders believe that only Christians are truly brothers, especially those walking in covenant, and that we are not brothers with those who are outside of Christ. Paul believed it important to emphasize the brotherhood of all mankind while not denying that Christian relationships are special. A third serious concern he had, he said, had to do with how the leaders in ecumenical communities should relate to the Roman hierarchy. He seemed to believe that the communities were in danger of losing favor with church authorities and that it might cause the authorities to take action and to take more hands-on control of the renewal communities. As I understood it, he believed that the people praise should build strategically in order to keep a good relationship with Catholic authorities on one hand and to continue the then current situation in which the Roman Catholic Church had no direct authority over ecumenical communities. In the days that followed, I thought quite often about the matters Paul brought up concerning hard times prophecies. At that time, I thought it would be a good thing if structures in which Christians trusted, especially denominational structures, were to fall down and there were to be a restoration of church of truly committed followers of Jesus. It certainly was not hard to believe that economic hard times were close upon us when the interest rates had climbed well over 10%. Inflation was rampant. We had been through two energy crises in the 1970s, to say nothing of the long-standing Cold War between the Western nations and the Soviet Union. The hostages who had been held for months by the Iranians, the instability of the Middle East, these were all factors that were always on the news. On the other hand, I was in the midst of a change in my understanding of eschatology, eschatology such that I was learning to focus on living and building for the long haul rather than to live with all my hopes in an imminent rapture of the church. To me, both groups had something to contribute to the whole picture. Concerning brotherhood, I recognize that all human beings are children of God by creation since all descend from Adam who Luke 3.38 calls the Son of God, not in the sense of being begotten by God as Jesus was, but a creation of God. 
and adopted by God as, as a son. However, there is also a clear biblical distinction between how we believers are called to relate to those within the Christian community in contrast to how we're called to relate with people outside the community. For example, Galatians 6.10 reads, So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The Bible does teach that those who are in Christ are adopted by God as his children, and therefore we are brothers to one another, not only in our humanity, but we are uniquely brothers in the redeemed community of Christ. God commands us to love our neighbor and even to love our enemy. But he requires many more specific act, acts of love toward, toward one another in the family of God. After all, as St. Peter wrote, it is by God's doing that you are a chosen, roi, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We who are in Christ are the redeemed human race, a people group uniquely set apart as God's own. As such, we belong to one another in a different way than we relate to those outside the covenant of God. I was ambivalent concerning the matter of the community's relationship with Roman Catholic hierarchy. My deep-seated convictions that the de denominations do not represent God's heart for a unified church, my own experience of having been expelled from the denomination of my youth, and my identification as a non-denominational Christian all tended to make me think that a breach with the Roman Catholic hierarchy would equip us to freely pursue being the church of God's heart. At the same time, I believe that I had been called by God to work toward unity in the church along with brothers who were still connected to the denominational structures. All in all, however, however, on most of these issues, I would have to say that I was more closely aligned in my thinking with the brothers in Ann Arbor than those in South Bend. Still, I was surprised to learn in the Chicago meeting that these differences had led to serious division and that the dissolution of the association was imminent. Still, these things seemed far, fairly far removed from day-to-day -day life we were living in the servants of the Lord. When it came to how to approach these translocal relationships between communities, as a non-denominational, by conviction, I clearly leaned toward a fellowship of communities rather than to a federation of communities or to one community with numerous geographically situated branches. As we headed back to Minneapolis, one thing had become clear. We leaders of the servants of the Lord would need to make a decision regarding which group of communities we would join with, or we could make the decision to just stand on our own. On the trip home, I talked with Jack about what seemed to me to be yet another viable option. If there was a split in the association, I asked, could we not consider connecting with the communities in the new wine stream rather than to choose between our brothers and the Word of God and the people praise? Jack responded with something like, well, that's a possibility. The old adage is, people hear what they want to hear. I certainly did. I came away from that conversation believing that we and the servants would seriously consider connecting with the New Wine Brothers 
if the split came to full fruition. And a few months later, when tragically in our own community, we were dividing because of the split in the association, I would seek to secure people, especially Protestants, in the servants by telling them what Jack had said to me about the possibility of connecting with the new wine communities. The reality is that joining up with the new wine stream was never more than a possibility, most likely quite a distant one at that for Jack. And looking back, I realized that out of my own desire, I wrongly, albeit unwittingly, made more out of his words than he had any intention to communicate. Although I did not realize it at the time, this situation was going to show me a lot about myself that I had not seen clearly, including things in me that I needed God to change. Fairly soon after the association split, the servants' body of coordinators, after deliberation, made the decision to remain neutral in regard to the association conflict. We agreed that we would try to continue as friends with all but not join a group. Then Larry Alberts moved back to Minneapolis from Saskatoon and it soon came to light there had been tension among the three head coordinators about this decision. These men were aware of disagreement and conflict between the leaders of the communities in Ann Arbor and South Bend well before I was. As far as I can remember at that time the rest of us coordinators were not aware of the difficulties between our own leaders. There had been a legitimate need in Saskatoon, and Larry is certainly qualified to go help out. Therefore, when the head coordinators brought the matter to the rest of us, we readily gave our assent. It was not so much that Jack, Hal, and Larry were against one another, although given their different personalities and approaches, they had to work at learning to trust each other fully most certainly a common challenge in human relationships. The big problem that surfaced during the split was that they had different historical ties with the other two communities involved. Over the years, Jack had been more closely connected as a friend to the people praise leaders in South Bend, whereas Larry had been closely affiliated with Steve Clark, the overall coordinator of the Word of God and founder of the Servants of the Word Brotherhood in Ann Arbor. In keeping with that relationship, Larry had begun a brotherhood in the servants of the Lord that had close ties to the Ann Arbor Brotherhood. As events unfolded, I came to the conclusion that on the level of ideas and methods, Hal had more affinity with Ann Arbor. However, he was joined relationally with Jack, who had been a mentor and spiritual father to him. As the years passed, I came to realize that I have had not had enough information to make a clear judgment as to who was right and who was wrong in the things that developed. It was too complicated then, and I cannot even remember the details well enough now. Besides that, unless I could help resolve relationships by sharing my memories and thoughts about it all, it would only be gossip to give a blow-by-blow -blow account. There were plenty of misunderstandings and mistakes to go around. I'm trying to share my story because of what I've learned about God, about God's ways, and about my need to be changed. So I will focus on my own journey through one of the most difficult seasons of my life. Whatever else the prophecies may have meant, the warning that structures in which we trusted would be shaken had already begun in my life. The summer of 1981 was tense from the beginning. Larry was back but had not resumed his responsibilities as a coordinator. 
The reason given for this was that it was a season for him to seek some needed change from the Lord. Understandably, Larry struggled with the feeling that he was being set aside because of his relationship with the Ann Arbor brothers. Jack had become my personal pastoral leader when Larry had been sent out, but Larry was my friend. He had added much to my life. I appreciated him and respected his calling and gifts. It was difficult to see him struggle and it was difficult to deal with the tension that seemed to be over all of us leaders. I remember on at least one occasion when having lunch with Larry, I shared with him an illustration from Bill Gothard's teaching that I had received as wisdom when dealing with unjust suffering, if Larry was indeed being unjustly treated. Gothard, in his 1973 teaching about being under authority, read from 1 Peter 2, and then said, God uses the hammer of authority and the chisel of unjust suffering to form the living stones that make up his spiritual house. I encourage Larry to rest his case in God and to trust him to work through the coordinators. As I recall, Larry responded that I just didn't know enough of the facts to understand. I probably didn't. As far as I know, all the brothers involved, both in our local community and the other communities as well, were doing the best we could in all sincerity to do what was right before God. Without doubt, none of us was perfectly aligned with God's perception of the situation. Surely many of us had some measure of carnality in our viewpoint and interactions. Clearly the situation was much more complicated than I had assumed. Over the course of the summer, we came to what I thought was a mutual agreement that Larry would move to the Brotherhood in Ann Arbor and become a member of the Word of God community. Before long, however, it became clear that Larry had felt coerced into that agreement and tensions continued to grow even after Larry moved to Ann Arbor late in the summer. In late August, several brothers and sisters around the community, including two men's groups leaders in the district which I oversaw, came to the conviction that they needed to leave the servants and follow Larry and the Word of God leaders. Several of them sought to influence others to do the same. And, most hurtful to me, the men in my district who were among my closest friends had made this decision and had taken their action without communicating with me about it beforehand. It became even more personal when Randy, who had co-signed on our home with us, moved out of the house to join with those leaving. I think these brothers and sisters may have been trying to help rectify the problem. I think they may have intended their actions to be a protest concerning Larry's move to Ann Arbor and a way to influence the coordinators to align with the Word of God in the larger split. However, their actions only made it that much more difficult to consider seriously aligning that way at all. Over the next three weeks, I could hardly eat or sleep. I lost 15 pounds as I agonized internally and labored almost constantly to stem this, quote, rebellion, unquote, as I saw it, seeking to keep other members from leaving the servants to join the split within our own community. I honestly tried hard not to speak personally against those who had left, even while I opposed their actions in no uncertain terms. Over and over again, when talking with community members who were shocked and confused, having none of these issues, I declared our position of neutrality in the larger split. Although I meant well, looking back, I can see that neutrality was almost impossible by that time. What is more, I promised too many of the Protestants, especially, 
that we would consider alliances with, other gr with groups other than those in the association, namely with the teachers in the new wine stream. Neutrality became even more unlikely in mid-September. During the same time that we'd been trying to deal with these issues concerning the divided association and Larry's relationship with our head coordinators, we had also been planning for a great 10-day celebration of our community's 10th anniversary in mid-September. We planned a community-wide picnic and an arts and craft festival and special gatherings, one for covenant members, one for all the men, one for all the women. The celebration was to begin with gatherings for worship and with remembering our history on Thursday and Friday and Saturday evenings, followed by a Sunday afternoon gathering with Ern Baxter, one of the great preachers of the 20th century, as the speaker. We seriously considered whether or not we should cancel the celebration because of the division and instead call for a time of repentance and mourning. However after, however, after taking counsel together, all of us remaining coordinators agreed that we should first celebrate God's goodness during the ten years of our life together. During that discussion, I reminded the brothers of the time recorded in the eighth chapter of Nehemiah when Ezra read the law of God, which had been lost for a season, for the people who had returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. As Ezra read and translated the law, the people began to weep, convicted because they had not been living according to God's law. However, Nehemiah commanded them not to weep because that day had been consecrated wholly to the Lord. Then Nehemiah instructed the people, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8.10 The next day, the people discovered God's command to celebrate the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, and they obeyed. For seven days they lived in booths and read the law daily, and there was great rejoicing. Chapter 8, verse 17 says, Then, on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly with fasting and mourning and confession of sins. We coordinators came to the conclusion that the Lord was calling us to lead our community first to celebrate God's goodness and then to enter a season of seeking God with repentance and confession afterward. The brothers had me preach from the, this passage on Nehemiah on the first Thursday night of our celebration. The people of our community received this word and we were able to have a real celebration of God's goodness during those following days. Even so, the celebration was not without pain. First, we were acutely aware of those who had left us. Second, during the celebration, a group of men came from the Brotherhood in Ann Arbor to Minneapolis, and along with some of those who had left the servants, began to contact members of our community in their homes in order to tell Larry's side of the story, which they felt we coordinators had not disclosed as fully as we should. One evening, they even showed up at a community-wide men's celebration in an effort to present Larry's case to all the men in the community. Following the celebration, we did call the community to a season of seeking the Lord in prayer and fasting. Later that fall, men representing each of the sides of what had been the Association of Communities made official visits to present their respective cases to our body of coordinators. Paul DeSales and Kevin Ranahan came and presented to all our coordinators their plan to form a fellowship of communities. 
Paul and Kevin offered our community friendship and continuing relationship seemingly without conditions or a desire to be in charge. And it was obvious by this time that Jack Brombach desired to see us join in fellowship with them. Ralph Martin from the Word of God in Ann Arbor and Greg Gabrielides from the Work of Christ Community in East Lansing, Michigan came to represent the Sword of the Spirit, the community of communities which had formed in connection with the Word of God. Their visit was friendly enough in tone, but they were absolutely clear about their terms. They said that we would remain in a relationship as brothers if we were to join the Sword of the Spirit or if we were to stay neutral, meaning that we would not join either group. However, if we decided to join the people praise in a fellowship of communities, then they would consider us covenant breakers and no longer brothers. This approach to us was essentially the final straw. Any of us who had leanings toward the Word of God because of personal relationships and affinity with the vision and theological approach realized there was no longer a chance that the servants would continue in any working relationship with the Word of God and the Sword of the Spirit. We all knew that we could not respond favorably to what we saw as ungodly pressure. To relate to the Sword of Spirit, it seemed to us as though we would have to give up our responsibility to lead the servants according to the direction of the Holy Spirit. One good thing did come out of that visit. Because of the friendly way Ralph approached us even when presenting the ultimatum, we did gain some confidence in him personally. Therefore, Ralph became our primary contact in the Word of God. Eventually, after months of work with Ralph, we came to a formal agreement to release all the people who had decided to leave the Servants of the Lord Covenant into the care of Word of God leaders with the condition that these people agree to move to Ann Arbor. Gradually, after that, tensions within our local community subsided. Through this whole process, one thing became clear. I was the only one who had given any serious consideration to the idea of relating to some group other than the new fellowship of communities or to the Sword of the Spirit. This was painful to me. Because I had made this a part of my defense of our community during the time when people were leaving, I now felt like I had lost integrity. I also felt that to some degree I had been betrayed since I had put so much weight on the conversation I had had with Jack about the possibility of aligning elsewhere. Jack and I eventually worked this out, but it put a significant strain in our relationship for a season, so much so that in 1982 I began to relate to Bill Rademacher for pastoral care. As I've said already, the problem was mine. I had heard what I wanted to hear. I put far too much weight on that one conversation with Jack. Only years later, after several somewhat similar incidents, did I come to understand that when talking with someone in authority, I have had a tendency to take their words too literally and in a sense even too seriously. I've had to learn that because of my desire not to be a rebel, I could be too compliant. I've had to face the fact that there is an unhealthy way to rely on the words of human authority without taking enough personal responsibility to hear God for oneself and without following the Holy Spirit's leading in responding to human authority. My biggest regret about my own behavior as I look back is that I acted unwisely at times because of this orientation to take things told me at face value. I assumed that those in authority over me were giving me all that they needed to know 
in order to make whatever decisions might be required. I was convinced then, and I still am for that matter, that there are different spheres of authority and those with a wider sphere need more information to fulfill their responsibility than those with a lesser sphere need. However, I now understand more clearly, since it was not only the overall coordinator who was called to lead the community, nor was it only the head coordinators. Rather, it was the whole body of coordinators acting in corporate as one entity who were ultimately responsible to govern the community. Because our decisions were supposed to be made in unanimity, we all needed to have the fullest picture possible in order to make the best decisions. Now that I work with fellow elders of, our ch of a church community, this same governing principle applies. Sadly, it took years and other conflicts before I finally saw that I had not pressed hard enough for everything to be put on the table when all involved were together. I was naive. At this point, I still believe that the men involved meant well. I believe they were trying to do the best they could. But by insisting that everything be put on the table from all sides, I may have failed in my duty. There is even the possibility, however small, that if I had pressed harder, we might have gotten to the bottom line and actually resolved some of the deeper issues. But whether we would have or not, I was naively trustful and gave my assent to decisions without full enough understanding. May God help me not to do so ever again. May God help me to foster an environment in our present community in which the elders can actually take the time and suffer the pain necessary to come to full unity concerning the wisdom and direction of God for the people over whom he has made us overseers. I also struggle with how to pray about it all. Since the early 70s, I have found the Psalms a source of life, even at times when the rest of the scripture seemed dead to me. During that time of anguish, I felt kinship with David when I read passages such as these. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm, Psalm 41.9 For it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house we walked in the throng. Psalm 55, 12-14 Excuse me, I had trouble turning the page. Another passage. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter. Yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Psalm 55, 20-21 Yes, I knew the feeling of betrayal. Even so, I could not actually pray these psalms in regard to my brothers who had left the community because, as St. Paul wrote, our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but rather against spiritual forces. Besides, I was very much aware that my brothers were probably inclined to pray the same thing about me. Hurting as I was, I recognized even then that only God could sort this all out. Only He knew the whole picture, including the thoughts and intentions of all of our hearts. As I end this chapter, I will add that there was more pain yet to come. That will unfold in chapters ahead. Still, in it all, 
many wonderful things continue to happen as well. No matter how imperfect I was, or anyone else was, God was still faithful and living in the context of committed relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ still beat any alternative. May God bless each of you and grant you faithful brothers and sisters with whom to share your life, all of your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly.